Section 20 of Constructive Conscious Control of the Individual by F. Mathias Alexander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 4. Sensory Appreciation and its Relation to Happiness. The characteristic note of true happiness is struck when the healthy child is busily engaged in doing something which interests it. It may be the little girl washing and wiping her teacups, or dressing and undressing her doll, or the little boy setting to work to make a toy train or cart with the aid of a piece of wood and a string, or piecing together some modern toy which, when completed, will be a house or a bridge or a working model of some machine. The child is always attracted by machinery. Indeed, to find out how it works is the natural desire of every healthy child, and it is therefore very significant that in schools where experiments have been made in re-education on a general basis, the children have become more interested in this work than in any other of their school activities. They are not slow to recognize that they are themselves the most interesting machines, and their natural interest in mechanics finds full scope in the process of their own re-education. Our experience has been that this interest, an intelligent interest in the working of their own psychophysical mechanisms, is one that grows steadily and comprehensively. For the psychophysical processes which precede and accompany the child's desire to acquire knowledge of the mechanical working of inanimate machinery are the same as those which are called into activity in connection with the acquisition of the knowledge of the satisfactory use of its own mechanisms. It should be obvious to all concerned that in any process of growth or development of the child or adult, experience in employing the mechanics of the psychophysical organism should precede all other mechanical experience, and that any experiences gained later in the sphere of inanimate mechanical experimentation would thus be materially increased in value. One can recall the expression of interest, happiness, and satisfaction exhibited by the child when one has enabled him to understand for the first time that his unduly stiffened neck, with perhaps his head too far pulled back, is really not the fault of his neck at all, but is due to the fact that he is trying to do with the muscles of his neck what should be done by other mechanisms. Footnote. Of course the teacher's manipulation will have given him previously the reliable sensory appreciation in this connection. For a detailed statement, see chapter Imperfect Sensory Appreciation. End of footnote. One cannot forget either the unfamiliar but satisfactory manifestations of the child when he becomes able to inhibit, that is to say no to some stimulus to misdirected activity, which in the case of the last illustration would be to say no to his subconscious desire to throw back his head and stiffen his neck, and then, with an expression born of confidence, to give orders or directions which are the result of a reasoned conception of his correct means whereby, the whole process tending to prevent the overexcitement of the fear reflexes. Footnote. The demeanor of the child changes when he learns to inhibit his desire to respond to a certain stimulus, before going on to give the new orders or directions which are the forerunners of the new means whereby the particular end he desires can be achieved. 
This change of expression was very noticeable in the case of a little girl who had developed the most pronounced bad habits in the use of her psychophysical organism and had what we call a dour expression when her lesson started. At a certain stage in her re-education, she developed a conscious recognition of the new and correct experiences secured by the teacher's manipulation and she became able to inhibit, i.e. to say no to the stimulus which had previously started up the whole train of movements that were incorrect and harmful. When she discovered this, viz, that by saying no to herself, she could prevent her troublesome and long-established bad habits from gaining the upper hand, her whole demeanor changed and with a confidence that was quite new to her, she proceeded to give herself the directions which would enable her to make in the new and coordinated manner, correct means whereby, the very movement which she had stopped herself from making in her old mal-coordinated manner. The fact that she could not only think out, but control the means whereby she could attain her end, instead of rushing at it blindly in her old subconscious way, robbed her of the diffidence which had been such an overdeveloped trait in her case, and with the gradual development of control, the old dour expression gave place to one of confidence and happiness. And a footnote. Experience has proved to us that children are unusually interested in the working of their own psychophysical machinery when the processes employed are concerned with re-education on a general and conscious basis. They find a new interest in all activities to which they can apply an improving use of themselves, and their happiness in finding, for instance, that they can improve their games by a conscious general direction of themselves, a very different thing from the usual specific directions they receive in coaching lessons, is a happiness which increases with their psychophysical improvements. I shall now endeavor to show that the lack of real happiness manifested by the majority of adults of today is due to the fact that they are experiencing not an improving, but a continually deteriorating use of their psychophysical selves. This is associated with those defects, imperfections, undesirable traits of character, disposition, temperament, etc., characteristic of imperfectly coordinated people struggling through life beset with certain maladjustments of the psychophysical organism, which are actually setting up conditions of irritation and pressure during both sleeping and waking hours. Whilst the maladjustments remain present, these malconditions increase day by day and week by week, and foster that unsatisfactory psychophysical state which we call unhappiness. Small wonder that under these conditions the person concerned becomes more and more irritated and unhappy. Irritation is not compatible with happiness, yet the human creature has to employ this already irritated organism in all the psychophysical activities demanded by a civilized mode of life. It stands to reason that every effort made by the human creature whose organism is already in an irritated condition must tend to make the creature still more irritated, and therefore, as time goes on, his chances of happiness diminish. Furthermore, his experiences of happiness become of ever shorter duration, until at last he is forced to take refuge in a state of unhappiness, a psychophysical condition as perverted as that state of ill health which people reach when they experience a perverted form of satisfaction in the suffering of pain, 
that is, in the enjoyment of bad health, as we say. This perversion links up with those purely animal traits which are apt to accompany morbid conditions, and which become unduly and harmfully manifested in those states of unusual excitement and marked depression when the individual's reasoning is in abeyance, and he is dominated by his emotional impulses. We have merely to consider the experiences of the human creature, afflicted with the conditions of irritation and pressure already referred to, in his attempts to employ this irritated organism in a general way in the activities of life, to recognize that even his occasional experiences of happiness will be of unduly short duration, and will tend to become more so with the progress of time. It matters not whether these experiences are gained in the sphere of rest, work, recreation, pleasure, games, or general education. In all these activities, impeding factors, such as irritation and pressure, remain more or less unchanged. This means that experiences that would only tend to irritate a person in possession of a comparatively high standard of sensory appreciation and of satisfactory coordinated psychophysical mechanisms would be certain to irritate most harmfully a person who is already beset with irritation and pressure, in consequence of the harmful condition of unreliable sensory appreciation in the use of the organism which we have indicated. Furthermore, such a person will be irritated by experiences which would not have the least effect upon one whose sensory appreciation is reliable. The psychophysical condition of the person afflicted with irritation and pressure is such that all his efforts in any direction will be more or less of a failure as compared with the efforts of those who are not so afflicted. And there is probably no stimulus from without which makes more for irritability of the person concerned than failure, either comparative or complete, in accomplishment. Nothing which can have a worse effect upon our emotions, self-respect, happiness or confidence. In fact, upon our temperament and character in general. Just note the expression and general demeanor of one who is a success in life, then of one who is a failure of one who has just succeeded in some simple act, in work, games, or learning something, than of one who has failed comparatively or completely. If we note any of these people on days when comparative success has attended their efforts, the least observant among us must be convinced of the striking influence of success and of how conductive it is to happiness. Watch the child in its earliest efforts before and during school days, or the experiences of adults in the activities of daily life in any sphere, and it will be observed that when either is employing his organism successfully, happiness and satisfaction rule supreme. Confidence is born of success, not of failure, and our processes in education and in the general art of living must be based upon principles which will enable us to make certain of the satisfactory means whereby an end may be secured, and thus to command a large percentage of those satisfactory experiences which develop confidence, as against a small percentage of those unsatisfactory experiences which tend to undermine our confidence and make us unhappy. A well-known medical specialist sent one of his patients to me for a diagnosis. He then called upon me to discuss the details of my conclusions, 
and when I pointed out to him that his patient would be a difficult pupil to re-educate in consequence of his unusually unbalanced emotional condition and state of harmful irritability, he remarked, I must tell you that he has been soured by comparative failure in his professional work. In order to illustrate these points, we will deal with the practical experiences of the human creature in the fields of recreation and games, because we may assume that here, at any rate, he will be acting in accordance with the dictates of his own wishes and desires in the anticipation of those psychophysical experiences which make for happiness. We are all aware of the pleasurable anticipation and even joyous, mild excitement associated with the early experiences of our men and women friends who take up golf, tennis, cricket, football and other games and forms of recreation. This pleasurable anticipation arises from the fact that they associate the manifestations which we call happiness with indulgence in these activities and there can be little doubt that we should be able to command a continuance of happiness and an increasing satisfaction with the increase of our experience in any game or form of recreation, as far as our personal efforts at any rate in the practice of the game are concerned. But despite this fact, we know that in the great majority of cases, manifestations of happiness, contrary to expectation, tend to decrease rather than increase with the accumulation of practical experiences in these forms of recreation. That this is the case with most of us is surely proof that something is radically wrong with the use of our psychophysical mechanisms and with the application of these mechanisms to the demands of the particular game or recreation. The reason for this will be clear if we try to set down the psychophysical experiences in action and reaction which result from a person's decision to play, say, golf. Let us take the case of any ordinary person, not some person exceptionally well equipped for golf, and watch him in his first lesson with his teacher, professional or otherwise. It is safe to conclude, firstly, that this pupil's sensory appreciation is more or less unreliable and associated with an imperfectly coordinated use of his psychophysical mechanisms, and secondly, that he has never been re-educated on a general basis. Unfortunately, this applies equally to the teacher and means that in both cases their knowledge of the use of the psychophysical mechanisms which they are about to employ in the lesson is the result of unsatisfactory and even harmful subconscious experiences. It is safe to assume that they have little conscious knowledge of the use of these mechanisms either in the field of theory or in that of practice, and even that little will be on a specific basis. The true relation of cause and effect on a general basis in connection with the working of these mechanisms will not be given due consideration, and, as we shall see, the majority of effects, symptoms of some cause or causes that they chance to recognize, will not be treated by them as such but as causes, and dealt with in accordance with the end-gaining principle. We are all familiar, for instance, with the type of instructions which the teacher will give to the pupil in regard to holding the club, keeping his eye on the ball, and all the other things which the pupil should or should not do with the different parts of his organism at a particular time. Now, it will be clear to any spectator with a knowledge of the satisfactory employment of the psychophysical mechanisms on a general basis that a particular pupil 
will be psychophysically incapable of carrying out satisfactorily quite a number of the specific instructions given to enable him to meet his difficulties, and indeed that any attempt on his part to carry out these instructions on the end-gaining principle will result with practice in an increase, not in a decrease of his difficulties. It is a matter of common knowledge that the majority of players fail to keep their eyes on the ball, but neither the pupil nor the teacher is aware of the fundamental impeding psychophysical factors concerned with this failure. It is impossible within the scope of this book to discuss these factors in detail in relation to golf, and I intend instead to deal with the pupil's attempt to carry out the teacher's instruction from the standpoint of reliability of sensory appreciation and of coordination on a general basis. As a preliminary, I want to point out that in the teaching plan, of which the lesson we are watching is an example, nothing is given in the way of practical help to the pupil in these directions. The teacher is certainly unable to make a satisfactory diagnosis in the matter of reliable sensory appreciation, and probably does not know whether a pupil is well-coordinated on a general basis or not. In any case, it is a fact that he does not attempt to make a diagnosis in either connection. He merely assumes that if he gives the pupil certain instruction, tells him what to do and what not to do, he has conscientiously carried out his duties as a teacher. Yet he should know perfectly well that in the course of the up-and-down swing of the club, for instance, quite a number of separate instructions that he has given his pupil have to be carried out by quite a number of different parts of the organism. Further, he should know that all these instructions must be linked together, that is, the pupil must be able to think of and put into practice more than one thing at a time, and that all the different parts of the organism must be employed sympathetically, must, as he would say, work together. In other words, the teacher should know that there must be coordination in the employment of all the mechanisms involved, yet he gives his pupil no means whereby he can achieve this necessary coordination on a general basis in the use of his psychophysical self. Now, we have already pointed out, and we are prepared to prove, that the great majority of people of our time are more or less imperfectly coordinated. If this is so, how is it possible for a pupil to coordinate this psychophysical organism on a general basis for the carrying out of the golf teacher's specific instructions on that first day or any subsequent day of lessons until he has been restored to a satisfactory standard of general coordination by some process of free education which will restore a reliable standard of sensory appreciation? It is clear, therefore, from the foregoing, that the pupil, whose lesson we are watching, is ill-equipped to carry out the teacher's instruction successfully, and we will now follow him through the experiences which result from the different efforts he makes to carry out these instructions in his ill-equipped condition. It will be safe to assume that after the performance of the first stroke, the teacher will have noted some particular fault or faults, to which he will draw the attention of the pupil, and it is equally safe to assume that the pupil, working on the end-gaining plan and indulging in that process which he calls concentration, will start to concentrate upon the different corrections suggested by the teacher in connection with the fault or faults pointed out to him, after which he will make another shot, i.e. try again. 
it will be found that in this attempt the pupil has already decided that one or other of these corrections is the all-important one, and so he will proceed to concentrate specially upon it to the practical exclusion of the others, and he will repeat this process with each subsequent attempt. Now, although it is quite possible that by this plan of concentrating on the corrections, he may succeed in eradicating some specific fault or faults, the point I wish to emphasize again is that he will have gained this end at the expense of overlooking some other equally important corrections in consequence of his having concentrated upon one at a time. By this process of concentration, therefore, as we have pointed out in an earlier chapter, he will probably have added to his list of faults. Not only this, but the psychophysical process involved is inseparable from the overexcitement of the fear reflexes, and gradually builds up an emotional state which impedes the pupil's progress in the game, and becomes an established phobia which will not only influence his play harmfully, but will impede him in all his other activities. One thing is certain, that if an imperfectly coordinated person makes a subconscious effort to carry out such specific instructions as we are now dealing with, the result as a whole must be unsatisfactory. The majority of his psychophysical experiences will be harmful experiences, inasmuch as they must tend to undermine his confidence in himself, and this lack of confidence, arising from a consciousness of complete or comparative failure, will serve to add still another impeding factor to the situation, in the overexciting of the fear reflexes and the development of harmful emotional conditions which are associated with a state of comparative unhappiness. One of the greatest factors in human development is the building up of a form of confidence which comes as a result of that method of learning by which the pupil is put in possession of the correct means whereby he can attain his end before he makes any attempt to gain it. By this method, the attempt he makes will be more or less successful from the outset, and a series of satisfactory instead of unsatisfactory psychophysical experiences will follow, and with them that intelligent confidence and state of happiness associated therewith, which is the consummated conquest of the human being on a conscious plane. In a civilization such as ours, where unrest, unhappiness, and lack of interest in the real things of life are strikingly manifested by mankind, all our efforts should be to enable the human creature to retain the interest and satisfaction exhibited by the healthy child when employing his organism successfully. Further, to create conditions in which satisfactory growth, with all that this process connotes in fundamental psychophysical manifestations, will continue right on through life, and in which the stagnation which accompanies fixed psychophysical habits and specific end-gaining uses of the psychophysical organism will be impossible. Conscious employment of the psychophysical mechanisms on a basis not of a specific but of a general coordination in all the acts of living constitutes a real and never-ending intellectual problem of constructive control, which instead of destroying, develops the interest and general intellectual pleasure in even such ordinary acts as those of sitting down and standing up. Take, for instance, the oft-repeated act of sitting down. In this act, the subconsciously controlled person, as soon as he touches the chair, instead of allowing it to support him, 
proceeds, as he would say, to sit down, that is, to make certain unnecessary movements and alterations in the adjustment and general condition of the organism, involving that imperfect use of the mechanisms which he subconsciously employs in order to seat himself, sit down. This means that he has performed the act of sitting down in accordance with his subconscious conception of it. In other words, he has slumped, as we say, and when this imperfectly coordinated condition is brought about, the process of seating himself is completed as far as his awareness is concerned. He remains oblivious to the misuse of the mechanisms involved and to the irritation and pressure associated with the harmful posture which he has subconsciously assumed and which, unfortunately for him, feels natural and comfortable. Likewise, when he stands up, he feels the way to stand up and repeats the same subconscious indulgence of his automatic habits connected with the act of standing up. And once he has stood up, the process again is completed as far as his awareness is concerned. In both instances, he ends a psychophysical process which in reality should never be finished. His standard of awareness, indeed, in such connections, is as inadequate as his sensory appreciation is unreliable, and the psychophysical conditions here indicated are inseparable from lack of interest and lack of general pleasure in the ordinary acts of life. On the other hand, when a person sits down or stands up in accordance with the demands of constructive conscious control, the process involves an adequate and continuous state of increasing awareness in regard to the use of the mechanisms, so that immediately there is a wrong use of these mechanisms, the person concerned becomes aware of it, and at once substitutes a satisfactory for the unsatisfactory use. Increasing awareness in this connection makes more and more for successful accomplishment in accordance with reasoned and satisfactory means whereby and connotes a continuous process which introduces a special interest and pleasure into the most ordinary acts of life. Footnote. As I wrote in Man's Supreme Inheritance, when real conscious control has been obtained, a habit need never become fixed. It is not truly a habit at all, but an order or series of orders given to the subordinate controls of the body, which orders will be carried out until countermanded. And a footnote. Conscious fundamental psychophysical processes do not end. They are continuous and therefore connote real growth and development. This applies to all the acts of life, and the establishment of the psychophysical uses which are associated with the processes of constructive control and continuous growth herein involved is inseparable from that psychophysical manifestation which we call happiness. They are processes which result from the application of the means whereby principles and not from the application of end-gaining principles associated with those specific attempts which are characteristic of human endeavor on a subconscious plane and which are adapted in the pursuit of what we call pleasure. Here we have the explanation of the growing need among subconsciously controlled people for specific pleasure with all its attendant shortcomings of unrest and excess, as compared with that enduring happiness with its accompanying sense of satisfaction and contentment, which is associated with moderation and general control. Unfortunately, 
We have been taught that all the ordinary, most necessary, and therefore most oft-repeated acts of life should be automatic and unconscious. For this reason they have become indifferent. The psychophysical condition here indicated is one that induces stagnation in the organism, and, as it is a condition which becomes more and more pronounced with advancing age, we gradually lose the capacity to take conscious interest in and derive pleasure from those normal and useful activities of life in the sphere of doing, hearing, seeing, etc. Small wonder, then, that sooner or later we seek satisfaction in less normal and less useful activities, and create an undue and harmful demand for specific excitements and stimulations or for some other specific pleasure. All our efforts in the way of education should be to create conditions in which growth will continue through life, conditions in which the stagnation which accompanies fixed habits will be impossible. We shall not then find men and women, as we do now, actually afraid to retire from the business or profession in which they have gained their livelihood and earned a competence, because they have no interest in doing anything else and cannot adapt themselves to a new way of life. This tragedy is one of the most common and most poignant features of our modern life, and it will be found that, in such cases, the individuals concerned have so little control over their psychophysical mechanisms, except within certain limited spheres, that they cannot employ them in an entirely new sphere without experiencing the most distressing forms of psychophysical functioning. A study of this question will show us that the processes of reasoning and of action in the ordinary subconsciously controlled person who has reached the age when he is about to retire from his business or professional work reveal a tendency to fall back and depend more and more upon automatic methods of procedure. By the time the greater number of men and women have reached this age, they have become mere automatons, repeating day by day the same round of psychophysical activities, and gradually limiting themselves more and more as time goes on within certain specific spheres of activity, whilst at the same time the defects and imperfections in the general use of the mechanisms upon which this activity depends become more and more pronounced. This means that with the approach of age, a condition of deterioration and stagnation is being gradually cultivated throughout the organism generally, the very worst possible preparation for the new way of life which is entailed when a man or a woman retires from his or her business or profession. This explains why so many people break down when they stop work. Footnote. One has only to note the attitude of people in general towards circumstances, even within the domestic sphere, which enforce changes in their habits of life, to realize what an exaggerated and even harmful conception they have of the sufferings or discomforts they are called on to endure on account of this disturbance of the automatic round of their domestic existence. End of footnote. Someone has said, in referring to the monotony of the environment in which the human creature lives and moves, that monotony is the deathbed of existence. But what of the monotony within the human creature's psychophysical self, a monotony caused by the gradual cessation of those sensations concerned with new experiences which have accompanied growth and mobility within the organism since birth? 
This is indeed monotony in its most harmful form, for it goes hand in hand with an increasing degree of stagnation throughout the whole psychophysical organism. We recognize, for instance, the danger of stagnation in our cells when the processes concerned with repair of wasted tissue cease to be operative. When this occurs, the stagnation which ensues is analogous to that which follows the cessation of sensations concerned with new experiences referred to above, both forms of stagnation making for monotony and unhappiness. Yet another form of monotony results from quote-unquote knowing, from having grown up, from the consciousness that we have ceased to grow. When a man reaches the point where he concludes that he knows his subject, he decides, consciously or subconsciously, that he has nothing more to learn, and he promptly begins to lose what he does know. When he becomes aware that he has grown up, he has reached a stage where he has already begun to stultify those potentialities for growth which once were his, and which might have been his to the end. Boredom, monotony, and discontent follow swift upon the establishment of this condition. We also find that the people who are satisfied that they know are the least observant people, and at the same time the most unhappy and discontented. Most people will admit that realization too often is not equal to anticipation. But this again is in consequence of the psychophysical conditions present. If realization is not only to equal, but even sometimes to surpass anticipation, our psychophysical plan of development must be fundamentally one of continuous growth and of new experiences, and consequently we never reach the point where we may be said to finish learning. This connotes a continuous anticipation of new experiences in growth and development, so that the realization of some new experience in psychophysical functioning does not bring a sense of finality with the consequent loss of interest, but is a clear indication that a step forward has been made in growth and development, which is again a stepping stone to the next stage of advancement and so on. The new experience is concerned with the gradually improving functioning of the human creature, indicated in the foregoing, are primarily dependent upon a growing understanding, consciously developed, of the operations concerned with the direction and control of the psychophysical organism in general during the waking and sleeping hours. William James suggested to us that we should get up every morning looking for health. We hope to go further for we have a technique to offer in this connection which will command for the human creature an increasingly high standard of that condition of psychophysical functioning which makes for health, and the experiences resulting from the use of this technique bring conviction that the all-important duty of the human creature in our present stage of evolutionary vicissitudes is that of the continuous individual cultivation of fundamental constructive conscious control of the human psychophysical organism and its potentialities. It is true that man has made a specific application of so-called conscious control in the employment of his powers of reasoning in relation to causes and effects, means and consequences outside of the human organism. But this attempt at specific control of environment has not resulted in a really reliable control of actual consequences. 
our experiences seem to show rather that the longer we continue to apply this form of unreliable conscious control, the worse off we are likely to be. My experience in connection with the practical application of the technique I have described convinces me that if we are ever to command a reliable, constructive control of environment and satisfactory reasoning in relation to causes and effects, means and consequences in this connection, we must be able primarily to command fundamental constructive conscious control of the individual psychophysical organism. This calls for a higher and higher standard of psychophysical functioning, which in turn demands a satisfactory and growing understanding and conscious use of the wonderful mechanisms concerned. This process provides the human creature with a sphere of psychophysical activity almost unlimited in its possibilities, where hitherto he has evidenced the worst forms of unreasoned and subconsciously directed activity. End of section 20